Lord, I ask for your strength to deliver this message. I pray that your, your spirit would speak through me to build up your church, that we might make disciples. Lord, teach us your ways. Be glorified this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Now, as we've been faithfully studying the Sermon on the Mount, I've been teaching you from this masterful sermon from the lips of our Lord that it really covers the entire spectrum of the human experience. In just three short chapters, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, he's laying out the standards for his kingdom. I keep saying this over and over again because we need to remember this stuff. Okay? And he addresses the standards related to self, the world, the word of God, morality, religion, money, and possessions, and finally the standard related to human relationships. In fact, you could say that all the way through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is contrasting true religion, which is his standards, and false religion, which are the standards of the world. In this case, it was the standards of the scribes and the Pharisees. It was the religion of man. It really is also a contrast between divine righteousness and what it demands, and human righteousness, or self-righteousness, and what it demands. It was a contrast between Christ and the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, the sermon begins in chapter 5, and it comes to this great climax in chapter 7. And the climax is stated in the two verses we're going to read this morning. And the remainder, and listen to me, the remainder of chapter 7, after verses 13 and 14, is simply an explanation of verses 13 and 14. So let's listen as I read them, Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Now, this was a a very provocative, a very controversial statement by our Lord, and it is still provocative and controversial even today. What is Jesus saying in these two verses? Well, in essence, he's saying this. It's time for a decision. It's time for a decision. You've got to make a choice. See, look at the text. There are two gates, you see that? Which bring the individual to two roads, which lead to two destinations, which are populated by two different crowds. You follow me there? Everybody see that? Now, Jesus had no other option but to call for a decision. Just think about this for a moment. Who is Jesus? Well, he is a king. He not only is a king, but he is what? The king of kings, right? And with a king comes a kingdom. But his kingdom is different from all other kingdoms of this world. And men simply would not understand his kingdom unless he explained it to them. This is exactly what he did in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. That's the Sermon on the Mount. He lays out or he articulates the principles for living life in his kingdom. And so logically, he offers us the choice to enter his kingdom or stay out of his kingdom. All right? Now, we make choices every day of our lives. Ultimately and inevitably, there is a final choice that determines our destiny, our eternity. And that choice is the one to which our Lord speaks in these verses in Matthew 7. So in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, you can kind of summarize those two verses with three simple words. The ultimate choice. Now this has always been the pattern of God, by the way. He calls for the subjects of his kingdom, his followers, 
to make the ultimate choice. For example, you may, for those of you that know your Bible pretty well, through Moses, God confronted the children of Israel. And in the 30th chapter of Deuteronomy, he said this, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you what? Life and death. Remember that? And the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. And he goes, you live by loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Holding fast to him. You do this, your life will be you know, of long length of days. That's Deuteronomy 30, 19 to 20. So God gave the people of Israel what? The ultimate choice, right? Life or death, good or evil, time for a decision. Joshua, do you remember this story? Who followed Moses as the leader of the people of Israel as they entered the promised land, he said this, if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served which are beyond the river, or the gods of the Ammonites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Again, the ultimate choice. You have to choose. Jeremiah was instructed by the Lord to say this in Jeremiah 21, 8 and 9. You shall also say to this people, thus says the Lord, behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. He who dwells in this city will die by the sword and by famine and by pestilence. But he who goes out and falls away to the Chaldeans, and would surrender to them, you will live. Once again, a choice between life and death. One of my favorite stories in the Bible, Elijah on Mount Carmel called for a decision. Remember that? 1 Kings 18.21, these words he said to the people of Israel as they waffled between following Baal or following God. This is what he said. How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. And of course, what happened? Remember the fire came down from heaven and consumed the sacrifice? In John chapter 6, we read that many people followed Jesus and called themselves disciples. Now, when I say many, let me put this in perspective. This is talking about right after he feeds the 5,000. There were 5,000 men there that, that, that he fed. But there would have been women and children. So the number was closer to 20,000. Now you can imagine a crowd of people following a religious leader of 20,000 people. But in John 6, 54, Jesus says this. Where after preaching, I am the bread of life, he says this. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Now, obviously, the Old Testament forbid eating human flesh, but the people couldn't understand that this was a spiritual analogy. And so the result of this, you find in John chapter 6, verse 66 and 67. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. And now, the way that this is written in the Greek language, their decision was decisive and final. See, he was really entertaining them because they were coming to him because of the signs and wonders and because of the food that they had eaten. And so Jesus says to the 12, verse 67, you do not want to go away also, do you? So now he's saying to the 12, what's your decision? What's your choice? Here's Peter's choice. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So the ultimate choice is the Jesus choice. Will you wholeheartedly surrender your life to him? Will you follow him wholeheartedly? So Jesus becomes the decisive point of every person's destiny. You choose life or you choose death. So essentially, this is what, that is what Jesus is saying in Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Of all the choices we make in life, this is the choice that concerns God the most because it involves eternity. 
Let's look at these verses again. Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. The way is hard that leads to life? I mean, what does that mean? We don't understand what Jesus is saying here because for us, kind of the ultimate choice to follow Jesus that hopefully you've made, it was really kind of easy, wasn't it? I mean, we heard the gospel message, right? That we're sinners, we need a savior. That's Romans 3, 23 and 6, 23. God provided a savior in his son, Jesus Christ, who came to die for our sins on the cross. That's Romans 5, 8. If we believe in him, right, in his promise of eternal life, we're saved from our sins and we go to heaven when we die. It's John 3, 16. 1 John 5, 11 to 13. My question was, well, how then is it hard to find eternal life, right? And why are there only a few who find eternal life? Do you see that? I mean, we see churches with attendance, they have people attending that are in the thousands, even tens of thousands every Sunday. Now, to unpack the, the enormity of Jesus' words, I need to give you a history lesson. Really, this history lesson will kind of be the rest of the sermon. But I want to talk to you about what I call the church growth dilemma. We need the ultimate choice, the church growth dilemma. Now, we all know that America was founded by Christians on Christian principles, and we're considered to be a Christian nation, Right? But over time, the conservative attitudes that was brought to bear, now hear me in this, the conservative attitudes and thinking that was brought to bear on American society by the influence of the church, it slowly began to give way to liberalism. And these are undeniable historical facts. Or facts. Now, from a religious perspective, when the mainline denominations, and by mainline, what do I mean by that? There were very few independent churches. There was always what we call denominations or mainline, like the Presbyterians, the Methodists, the Lutherans, and the Baptists, just to name a few. When the mainline denominations began to embrace liberal theology, the results were devastating church attendance began to drop. Uh, to this day, the mainline denominations, they are a shell of what they once were both in influence and in attendance. The churches that I have served in, well, some of the churches I've served in, one church was a part of the, a mainline denomination, the Presbyterian Church USA, which went way liberal. And so these people, the conservatives, broke off and started an independent church. Okay? Some of you have been involved in Methodist churches that have gone that way, and you've moved on to other churches. Okay? Now, this turn to liberal theology in the mainline denominations didn't sit well with many people. And so this gave rise to the birth of independent, conservative evangelical churches, which would be this church, for example. Now, roughly around the same time that these churches were starting, um, seeking to increase church attendance, the church growth movement was born. Now, the church growth movement arrived in the United States in 1961. When Donald McGavran established the Institute for Church Growth at Northwest Christian College in Eugene, Oregon. Four years later, McGavran and his colleague Alan Tippett, they moved to Pasadena, California, where they launched the School of World Mission at Fuller Theological Seminary. 
And over the next 15 years, this is important to hear me on this, almost all of the current leaders in this movement were greatly influenced by the teachings and writings of McGavern and Tippett and the team of missiologists they had gathered. Now here are some distinctives of, or distinctive aspects of the church growth movement. Just, there's more than these, I'm just giving you three. But the first emphasis was on making disciples over securing decisions. See what they saw in the church was the church being like a little mission station. And the people weren't leaving the mission station to go out to the world. And they wanted to make disciples, that was the first thing. The second thing, which was really radical, was the use of sociological research to analyze data, discern receptivity, set goals, and design strategies to get the church to grow. Now, of course, that sounds an awful lot like what other part of our culture grows that way. Businesses, right? Yes. Finally, a recognition that context and culture not church tradition, properly determined the methods employed, okay? So what is going on in the culture dictates the methods to reach people so that the church can grow. You could say that the church is just desiring to be relevant, okay? And during the 1970s, the mainline denominational leaders began to recognize that the church growth movement as a force to be reckoned with. And while some viewed this movement as nothing more than implementing business strategies, in other words, human reason, to spur church growth rather than dependence upon the Spirit of God, nevertheless, membership losses, especially in mainline denominations, caused a growing awareness that business as usual, evangelism, it was, it was no longer bearing fruit. It wasn't working. Now, you have to understand, this church is a product of that to an extent, okay? Because this is not part of any mainline denomination. And by the end of the 1980s, nearly every North American Protestant denomination was restructuring its evangelism, its new church development, and its leadership training effects to reflect insights and strategies gleaned from the church growth movement. Let me give you some examples of what happened. You, you've been through this. Churches went from a traditional service to a more contemporary service, right? And they didn't like it. They wanted to slowly ease you into that. They would have for two services, the traditional service and the contemporary service. The hymns were slowly replaced with what? Contemporary music, okay? You see where I'm going with all this? You, 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 you've lived through this. You've seen this. Okay? Now, among the most influential proponents of the church growth movement are Arthur George Barna, who really just analyzes the data and puts out the, the church report every year and so on. He's a worldview, worldview guy. Uh, Bill Hybels of Willow Creek Community Church. I know you've probably heard of him. And of course, Rick Warren of Saddleback Church. Let me give you two stories of how um, the church growth movement, the starting of Saddleback and starting of Willow Creek Church. In his best-selling book, The Purpose Driven Church, Rick Warren tells a story of the founding of Saddleback Church using church growth methodology. In 1979... He settled with his wife, Kay, in the area of Saddleback Valley in Orange County, California, and began to probe the people in his neighborhood to find out what prevented them from coming to church and what, what would they, what they look for in a new church. The answers that emerged were this. Uh, boredom. They went to church, they were bored. Distance from everyday life. Visitors feeling unwelcomed insistence on money and inadequate programs for children. Okay? Now, it is with these concerns that the church began in 1980 as a Bible study group of seven people. And the first worship service took place in a gymnasium in a high school on Easter Day in 1980. And by 1995, it opened its main building in Lake Forest with a 3,500-seat auditorium. In 2018, the church said it had baptized 50,000 people since its founding. And by the way, they're part of the Southern Baptist Convention. 
Now, Willow Creek Community Church started when Bill Hybels and Dave Holmbo were inspired by the success of the South Park Church's youth ministry, Sun City, of which they were both leaders, and they aspired to start a church that used relevant biblical teaching, music, and, of course, drama. Now, we grew up in this in campus ministries. We, we modeled this type of thing in, in campus ministry. We would have songs, we would have a, a drama or a skit, and you'd have a relevant message to college students. On October 12, 1975, the church met for the first time, renting Willow Creek Theater in Palatine, Illinois. And in 1977, the church purchased 90 acres in South Barrington, Illinois, to build its own building. They held their first service there in February of 81. And since then, the building has been doubled in size. And the property expanded to 155 acres. And as of February of 2020, the church averaged 18,000 people in attendance at its location, seven other locations. Now, what I want you to really hear me about is this. Those are all great stories, and God has used those churches to do, do great things. But Will Creek is considered to be kind of the founder of or, or associated with what we call the seeker-sensitive church. You ever heard that before? Or the seeker-sensitive model. Now, what I mean when I say seeker-sensitive, let me just give you a definition from gotquestions.org, and this is what they write. The seeker-sensitive church tries to reach out to the unsaved person by making the church experience as comfortable, inviting, and non-threatening to him as possible. Okay? Again, the church growth movement was, started out with a desire just to reach people that weren't being reached. Okay? And the hope is that they got questions.org continues is this, that the person who believes in the gospel through hearing these, through this type of method. The idea behind the concept is to get as many unsaved people through the door as possible. The church leadership are willing to use nearly any means to accomplish that goal. So you have theatrics and musical entertainment are the norm in the church service to keep the unsaved person from getting bored as he does with traditional churches. State-of-the-art technology and lighting and sound are common components in seeker-sensitive churches, especially the larger ones. You have expertly run nurseries, daycare, adult daycare, community programs, and much more that are common fixtures in the larger seeker churches. You have short sermons, typically 20 minutes, and are usually focused on self-improvement. Supporters of this movement will say that the single reason behind all the expense, the state-of-the-art technology, and the theatrics is to reach the unsaved with the gospel. However, rarely are sin, hell, or repentance spoken of, and Jesus Christ as the exclusive way to heaven is rarely mentioned because those doctrines would be divisive and it would be offensive to who? The seeker. Now, Churches like Saddleback and Willow Creek, they have proven very effective in reaching people with the gospel. Uh, many people come to faith in Christ. But it has been 60 years, folks, since the inception of the church growth movement. So we have a pretty good sample size of, of how has that worked? I mean, what has been the results of this church growth movement and secret senses movement? Because we all have experienced and all are here in large part because of that. Well, how is it done, for example, in fulfilling the mandate of the church to make disciples of all nations in Matthew 20, 18 to 20? So let's take a look at that, some of these this morning. How have they done in terms of making disciples? By the way, I'm, I, you know, I've, I've been a real fan of and have liked stuff with Willow Creek. I want to share a story with you because this is it's a good story. Bill Hybels of Willow Creek won the largest church in America. I mean, he said this, and he got it. He achieved his goal. And as he looked at his church that he had started, he realized he got it wrong. <laughs> he got it wrong. His church was large. It wasn't making disciples. And how did he discover this? Well, they, Willow Creek conducted a major survey that revealed that, that heavy involvement in programs and activities. Let me explain what he means by that. To pull off a Sunday service where you're going to entertain people, basically, where you have 
a, a large crew. It's not two people that have back there. You've got a large crew of people that are running all the lights and all the sound and even the fog machines and so on. You have practices, not a practice, but practices during the week for the, those who are playing the instruments up here. They are practicing and putting on skits. They have a creative arts team that are setting up the stages, okay? You've got top-notch programs. So these people in the church are working in church. It is a lot of work, a lot of effort to pull that off. And so what are those people doing? They're using their gifts to serve the church, right? Where are they not going? They're not going outside the church parking lot to reach people. Churches this size, you, we, we put on, I've been a part of it, we put on big Easter programs, for example, right? This church is, thing in the past has done that. How has that made disciples? How's that worked? It didn't, did it? And so he realized that through this survey that heavy involvement in those programs and activities did not necessarily translate into discipleship unless the church had a clear path for believers' development. In other words, you had to intentionally make disciples. So Little Creek changed. They began to emphasize discipleship to the use of small groups. But you don't have to be a mega church to make the same mistake that Willow Creek Community Church made. I mean, in his book, Call to Discipleship, Pastor Juan Carlos Ortiz writes this. When I took over the pastoral duties of a Pentecostal church in Buenos Aires, there were 184 members in my flock. My wife and I realized at the time that unless there was visible growth in the church, our pastoring days might be of short duration. So we set out to work very hard toward that goal, growth. We worked 16 hours a day, and after two years showed 600 members on the roll. All departments of the church were well organized and functioning. There was a minister of education, men's and women's groups, youth groups, and a follow-up program that covered all possible needs. And so there I was, with a well-oiled piece of machinery on my hands, but I knew something was terribly wrong. The thing that impressed me was that when I worked hard, everything worked out. When I didn't, the machinery started to bog down. I made a decision to set aside one week, and I went into the country to seek the Lord. While I was there, God spoke to me very clearly. Juan, the Lord said, where is my finger in all of this? You are dealing with my things. And you're promoting them as Coca-Cola promotes its product. As Reader Digest sells records and books. The letters, the visits, the phone calls. But where's my finger in all of this? I replied, Lord, I don't see your finger anywhere. I'm applying everything I learned at school and in seminars, but there is no moving of your spirit. God then began to speak to me about the condition of our church. He said, you're not growing. My reply was, Lord, we are growing. We've gone from 200 to 602 years. Then came this even more startling revelation. You're not growing. You're just getting fat. You used to have more people of the same kind. You had 200 without love, then 300 without love, then 500 without love, and now 600 without love. All without love. And I had to admit this was true. I had never sought growth in my congregation, just additions. We'd only multiplied more babies. God went even further. Yours is not a church, it's an orphanage. No one there is a parent. All are orphans, and you are the director of the orphanage. Sundays, you fill a bottle of milk and say, now open your mouths, and you think you are feeding your people. We can all be deceived by a church that grows that we're actually making disciples. And we're not. How about this? We just mentioned this. Evangelistic growth or transfer growth? Now, author Ken Sidney writes this. 
Perhaps church growth's greatest challenge in North America, and it is a challenge, folks, comes from research that shows that more than 80% of all the growth taking place in growing churches comes through transfer, not conversion. The statistic strikes at the, the heart, whether by computer or spiritual power, whether by entertaining them with all the effects or by the move of the spirit, the church growth movement must improve on those numbers. Now, in 1988, a denominational newspaper for the Southern Baptist Convention, and this is a absolutely stunning statistic, I want you to re- listen to this, revealed the evangelistic results for all churches of that denomination, and the results were shocking. So think of the entire Southern Baptist Convention, the largest denomination in the United States. This denomination reported in 1987 that with its 37,000 churches, there were on the average only two converts baptized in every church. The newspaper further reported that 50,000 were baptized who had transferred from other churches. Again, in the largest Protestant denomination in our land, the transfer of believers from one church to another is one of the largest contributing factors to numerical growth. And that leads right into the next result of the church growth movement, and that is this, the consumer Christian. Now, you've heard me talk about this before. Okay? We'll go into it again. But the church growth movement, to their credit, I don't think they initially birthed the consumer Christian, but they definitely nurtured his or her development or growth. In 1995, William Beckham wrote a book called The Second Reformation, Reshaping the Church for the 21st Century. This book is an argument for the use of small groups and churches to help make disciples. He writes that as early as the 1950s, leaders began to see that something was terribly wrong with church leadership and its members. He then quotes John R. Mott and says this, a multitude of laymen are today in serious danger. Again, this is in the 1950s, folks. It is positively perilous for them to hear more sermons, attend more Bible classes, in open forums and read more religious and ethical works unless accompanying it all there be afforded day-to-day an adequate outlet for the, their newfound truth. In other words, they're getting it, but they're doing nothing with it. And his reasoning for this, William Beckham, is this. It was the rise of the consumer Christian. <clears throat> He writes that the consumer Christian in today's church makes up roughly 80% of the body of Christ. 80%. The consumer Christian has, writ- has an unwritten contract with the church. And you know this if you've been in church leadership. The consumer Christian expects to be pampered, ministered to, and entertained in exchange for being counted in the pews from time to time and to give money occasionally, but only to support a system that's going to meet his or her needs. And this means that the consumer Christian is anything but a neutralizing factor in the ministry of the church. In fact, the consumer Christian probably represents the church's most debilitating factor. Consider that if there are 80% of the church is made up of consuming people, then the other 20% are those that are, are serving or are producing, right? And what are those that are producing? What are they capable of doing? Well, they're, they're capable of edifying the body, they're modeling New Testament Christianity, They're the ones evangelizing. They're the ones that are taking the gospel outside of that parking lot right there. But the consumer Christian requires the 20% of producing Christians. You got to see the producers. We have to maintain a system that will keep Mr. and Mrs. Consumer and all their little consumers happy, or they'll leave. And no matter. How many producing Christians it takes, you can expect a low return on effort, time, and money because a consumer Christian gives little, if anything, back to the real life and ministry of the church. Now, what does a consumer Christian look like? Well, perhaps the late Chuck Olson Olson (coughs) said it best in an article entitled Salad Bar Christianity. 
dated August 8th of 2000. It says, too many believers pick and choose their own truths. And there's a story that is told of the captain of a ship that is out to sea. When he sees smoke coming from a deserted island, upon arriving at the island, he finds it deserted except for one man. But the captain notices that there are three huts on the beach. So he asks the man, why are there three huts? To which the man replies, that's easy. The hut on the left, that's where I live. The hut in the middle is where I go to church. The hut in the far right is where I used to go to church. There's a little levity to lighten up everybody here, okay? But the consumer Christian, what do they do? They go from church to church that best meets their need. Now, since they're familiar with the church uh, and probably grew up in the church to some extent, they can give such spiritual-sounding reasons to justify their migration to greener pastors. If you're in church leadership, people leave. Why? Whether they don't like the pastor, it's something with his teaching, or they don't like the worship, or like the children's programs, and they can get it, what they want, somewhere else. So you get to pick and choose. Salad bar Christianity. Now, what does a consumer Christian look like? They look like the person that grew up in the church for roughly 30 years. They went to Sunday school, but they've been nothing but a spectator in worship. So they can't pray in public. They don't want to minister to people, and they're never going to share their faith. They just leave no vacancy in the life and ministry of the church. Just one less spot in the pew, a little less money in the offering, and one less person to pamper and please. So, folks, you've got to ask yourself the question, what's going on, right? What is going on? Well, the simple fact is this, that church leaders are held hostage today because a consumer Christian is the prime target audience of the 21st century church. Filling up the pews on Sunday morning is the measure of success for today's church. I mean, let's just say it. And you know what? That is a result of what? The church growth movement. How many of you had that thought? If we grew more, we would be more successful, right? That's how we think. That large church, they must be doing something right. They're blessed, they're successful. Now, the other outgrowth of the church growth movement is the thing called megachurches. The Hartford Institute for Religion Research defines a megachurch as an NC Protestant Christian church having 2,000 or more people in average weekend attendance. Now, the origins of the megachurch movement were many local congregants who returned on a weekly basis, believe it or not, can be traced back to the 1800s. I mean, folks, there were large churches, you know, 100, 150 years ago but they were considerably rare. The first evangelical megachurch would be the Metropolitan Tabernacle. That's a 6,000-seat auditorium, and it was inaugurated in 1861 in London by who? You should know the answer to this. Charles Spurgeon. It continued in the 20th century in the United States. In 1923, the Angelus Temple was inaugurated with a 5,300-seat auditorium in Los Angeles. Of course, it was led by Amy Semple McPherson. But megachurches exploded in the mid to late 20th century. In 2010, now listen to this, the Hartford Institute's database listed more than 1,300 Protestant megachurches in the United States. So we had very few, and now there are over 1,300. This is just in North America alone. With approximately 50 churches on the list in the United States that have an average attendance exceeding 10,000, with the highest recorded of 47,000 in average attendance. Now keep in mind that during the time of rapid church growth 
using church growth strategies, the influence of the church was dwindling. In April of 1990, George Barna wrote the popular book, The Frog in the Kettle. You guys remember this book at all? Anybody here? It was a massively popular book, and very relevant, I might add. It's called What Christians Need to Know About Life in the Year 2000. It was Barna's analysis of the declining influence of the church. Now, 11 years later, George Barna was quoted in an August 2002 article in Christianity Today, lamenting what he calls his nine beefs with the church. This was number five of Barna's nine beefs with the church. He called it a costless faith. He said this, Christianity has no cost in America. We've made it too easy to be born again, perhaps much easier than Jesus intended. When do we get to the point at which we accept smaller numbers of intensely devoted people rather than feverishly investing in filling auditoriums and stadiums with massive numbers of the lukewarm Christians that Jesus promised to spew out of his mouth in Revelation 3.16. Now, mind you, he's noticing the influence of the church dwindling, but what's happening to these churches? They're growing. You have these surge in these mega churches. Something was wrong. And that's the last point. The church growth movement has, has led us to this, a fading influence. Jesus said that Christians alone, remember I told you this, you and you alone, myself and myself alone, am the salt of the earth that, prints, that prevents the decay of society, and you and me are the light of the world that points the way to God. But the church is failing miserably in this mandate. Do you remember this in an article entitled, Record Low Number of Americans Hold Biblical Worldview by Brandon Showalter of the Christian Post? He wrote this just over a year ago, on March 31st of 2020. Only 6% of Americans possess a biblical worldview. So if there are what, and that's, what is 6% of 300 million? Not a whole lot, right? What is it, 1.8 million? Is that right? I don't do math well, and I was told in this job there would be no math. I'll leave that to Don or my wife. But anyways, if there were 300 million, I know there's 300, more than 300 million in America, there'd be 1.8 million would just have a um, biblical worldview. Approximately one-fifth of those who attend evangelical Protestant churches espouse a biblical worldview. So if there were 50 people, if there are 50 people here today, then 20% of you hold a biblical worldview. The numbers were much lower for those among mainline Protestant churches, which would make sense because they've gone which route? They're liberal. Only 8%. And if you're Catholic, only 1% hold a biblical worldview, which is astoundingly a statistic because they're told not to read their Bibles. How would they know? Right? Born-again Christians, right? A segment defined in part by their acceptance of scriptural exhortations regarding sin, grace, and salvation were three times more likely than average to have a biblical worldview. However, the fact that not quite one out of five born-again adults hold a biblical worldview, highlights the extensive decline of core Christian principles in America over the last several decades. And of course, this has led to the rise of, you remember this? Notional Christians. Americans who identify as Christian, but do not profess to know Christ personally as Savior, they, comp they comprise 54% of the U.S. population. So in other words, you have 54% of the people that think that when they die, they're going to go where? And they don't have any clue of, what a, world, of a Christian worldview. See, very few of them, just one-tenth of one percent, hold a biblical worldview. And this thing is, this next statistic, it bothers me. A quarter century ago, so if we're at 2020... 
when this was written, what's 25 years from 2020? 1995. I remember 1995. I was in ministry in 1995. In 1995, as many as 12% of the adult population of America held a biblical worldview. And I just told you that number is down to what? 6%. I mean, that is a massive drop. And what we're seeing in society is a shift toward non-Christian worldviews like postmodernism, Marxism, secular humanism, and modern mysticism that now drive American thinking and lifestyles. And so we sought to, to grow the church, right? And what has happened? Well, in addition to these five results, disciple-making, evangelistic growth versus transfer growth, the consumer Christian, megachurches, and fading influence, the church growth movement shifted the role of a pastor from a shepherd to a CEO, reshaped the form and purpose of worship from praising God to more of a rock concert setting, redefined the function of the church to entertain an audience instead of making disciples, changed the working definition of what it means to be a Christian in the world, and reset the standard of measure for a successful, healthy church from just simply worship of God to church attendance. Now, the focus on numbers as a sign of health and blessing and success in the church, it alarms me. Well, why? Well, get your Bibles out because we're going to end this sermon here in a minute. Because here is God's view of his church. Turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Starting in verses 8 through 11. Starting in verse 8, going through verse 11. There are a list of seven churches, and these churches are representative of churches of all different errors. There are two churches that are, are not rebuked. Five other churches are rebuked. This is one of the churches that wasn't rebuked. Verse 8, chapter 2, and to the church, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, the first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil's about to cast some of you into prison, so that you will be tested, and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. How would you like to have Jesus come and say that to you in this church? You suffered, and more sufferings coming to the point of death. But be faithful. How many would be back next Sunday? So, you have a small group of believers. The church in Smyrna was just small. They were poor, meaning they had few resources. They were destitute. They were persecuted, but they were what? Rich in the eyes of God and comforted in the presence of their Savior. Today we would say this is, would look like a small church with a limited budget that is being persecuted, but is not bowed to the pattern of the world. And to everyone else walking around, we would, they would look at this church and they would say, it's not a healthy church or a successful church, right? Now look at chapter 3, verses 14 and 19. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may become rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. 
So we have a large group now of mixed people in this church. Where I say by mixed, they're believers, there are some, but primarily this church was probably full of unbelievers. But they were wealthy. Laodicea was a very wealthy region. That meant they had many resources. But you see, they're also lukewarm, and because they're lukewarm, it blinds them to reality. They were miserably poor and naked. Today, we would say that this would look like a larger church, probably somewhat liberal, but it's got a big budget, with lots of church staff, with many activities and programs, but is bowing to the pattern of the world. So why does numbers alarm me? Well, I see stuff like this, and I have to check. What I'm seeing, is it in line with how God sees? The second reason this alarms me is look at the words of Jesus. Go to Matthew 7 again. We're going to close with this. Matthew 7, 13 and 14. The second reason this alarms me is this. Jesus never focused on numbers during his earthly ministry. Instead, he seems to have discouraged it. I mean, again, let's look at Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Few enter his kingdom. But the last 60 years of church history that I have just shared with you, does it line up with these two verses? It does not. Instead of hearing the words hard and few, we heard the words easy and many. Now this problem of of numbers has so infiltrated the church that it's become the elephant in the room when pastors meet. Here is a typical conversation that, that goes this way when I meet with Auburn pastors or any pastors. But how are you doing? Doing fine, how are you doing? How's your family? Get through all that stuff. Then you go, well, how's your church doing? You talk about that. And then there's the next question that comes, and everyone knows it's coming. And if you have a large church, you're great. I'm going to have a good answer. If you're a small church, you feel kind of bad. But it's this. How many do you have attending? Now, this numbers game has infiltrated entire denominations. I have a neighbor who was a pastor of a Pentecostal church. He told me a story about the last denominational conference he had just attended. And by the way, when he and I were talking, we were talking about the culture in our churches and so on, and our conversation naturally went to, how many do you have attending? And he looked at me and he said to me, and he says, are we really gonna do this? And I says, I can't. I said, Dave, I don't really care about numbers. So I think we're having numbers wise, but I could care less about numbers. We're about making disciples. But at this conference in his denomination, the pastors in the southern United States, the Bible Belt, they're concerned that the churches aren't growing in the Pacific Northwest in their denomination. For them, and if you've ever been in the South or lived in the South, believers and some unbelievers regularly attend their churches. What they cannot get wrap their minds around is that in Washington State, not only do unbelievers not attend church, but some believers do not attend church. Now, why are they so concerned about church growth? Because the measure of health and success and blessing in, in today's church is numbers. And yet, what did Jesus just say? Enter by the narrow gate because few will find it. Now, I didn't plan on on, on preaching this sermon. I wanted to go right through that verse, but I realized I can't get through that because what I'm going to share with you next week 
may be an entirely foreign concept to you. Because you weren't, and I wasn't, presented with a way that is hard. It's really kind of easy. You hear the gospel message, you walk down the aisle, you pray the prayer, you're sure your salvation, and guess what? You're good, right? Isn't that what you've heard? Some version of that? And yet he just said, it's hard. Very few find it. And so I had just wanted to give you a kind of a background of, of you've been conditioned in a way to think in a way about your salvation that is kind of unbiblical. And so the question that we really have to answer is this question right here that I'm going to answer next week. How do we enter by the narrow gate? Because that's all that matters. That's all that matters. And so what I want you to think about this week is simply this. Think about when you became a follower of Jesus Christ. I mean, we think about your circumstances, you know, where you heard it, how you heard it, all of it, and, and, and how has your life changed? And hopefully your life better radically have changed. Because what we're going to hear next week is about how hard it is, why there are only a few. Because the world we live in is not telling you to go by the narrow gate. It's telling you to go by the, the wide gate. And that's easy. And I'm afraid that we're on this path because we've made it so easy. Like George Bonner said, it's a costless Christianity. There's a cost. There is a, a striving, a giving of everything to a point of exhaustion to hopefully attain eternal life. And so it's really kind of odd. I, I will close with this. When we got caught up in the church growth movement, I was in charge of making sure that follow up with people that visited. And you know what we did? We would get people's names like we do here, okay? But we were far more aggressive. I have never done any training for guest relations training in this church. We just only get visitors. <laughs> but we got visitors. And we would aggressively be there getting their information down and, and taking them to our children's ministry program and make sure children are safe, doing all of that and getting their names and everything and asking literally their phone number, email address, all that. So we had that because that next Monday we were sending out letters to them, okay, thanking them for coming, hoping to see them again, and that we would follow up with that letter that week with a gift for them, baked goods. We had a crew of people making baked goods, and we had a crew of people that would drive and deliver these goods to these people. The point was to impress this visitor so much, they would come back a second time, because if they came back in consecutive weeks, we had a, an 80% chance that they would get involved in the church. Now, that is a lot of work to do that. And you know what it did in terms of our church growth? Absolutely nothing. Do you know what it did in terms of Fulfilling the great commission of making disciples? Almost nothing. And so, if you are under the age of 40, roughly around that age, you may have never seen a properly functioning church. Because there are churches that are like that all around this area that entertain, and they're larger, and people are leaving those churches, by the way. Those younger generations, they're leaving because they're bored with that. And eventually, the concert, the music, the smoke, all the lights and the theatrics, anything else, it gets old. And so they want something new. So what some of these churches have done is they've given them what they want. And the younger generation wants this. They want the lesbian pastor up there that's introducing her wife followed up by a comedian who's entertaining them, and then a brief message that has absolutely nothing to do with the Bible, and they call that a church. That's the new church of the 21st century. And that's from an article from the Christian Post. And of course, it has to be a lesbian woman, because why? That's what's popular today, and that's what the younger generation believes. That is the wide gate that leads to destruction. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we come to you with a, a hard word we heard, and we'll have a hard word next week. But Lord, I pray that as we are faithful to you, as we hopefully fall in love with you, as we grow in a, into a deeper love relationship with you, that, Lord, we would be about you. Lord, we desire that this church grow, but that you bring the growth. We desire that, that you would add to our numbers daily those who are being saved. We don't want to grow by church transfers. And so, Lord, there's our part. I pray that we would take the gospel outside the church parking lot. And all God's people said, amen. Enjoy your weekend. Have a great day. Bye-bye.